if anyone wants to learn anything from this podcast today, slow the bleep down. You need to do your easy days easy and your hard days hard. The way to build mental toughness is to get into mentally tough situations. That was Johnny Coffin, and this is episode 12 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today, we're talking to my husband, Johnny Coffin, who's a Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Chief Running Official for the Canadian Armed Forces. He grew up on a strawberry and raspberry farm on Prince Edward Island and spent his childhood playing every sport imaginable while trying to keep up with his three older siblings. He came to running in his late 20s as a convenient way to stay fit while he was deployed all over the world. He got as far as he could using his no pain, no gain mentality before seeking out the advice of a running coach who happened to be my brother, Kevin Beattie. Johnny references Kevin several times throughout this episode. So if you'd like to learn more about coach Kevin, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode three, where Kim and I interviewed him about his coaching philosophy. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including the story of how we met, running slower to get faster, building mental toughness, and the importance of windproof underwear. And now on to our conversation with my husband, Johnny Coffin. Well, hey, babe. Welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, babe. And you and you too, Carolyn. It's great to be here too. Can I get on this? Hey, babe. <laughs> well, Johnny, yes, we're definitely really happy to have you on this podcast. I know that I've gotten to know Carolyn so well over the last uh, several months of doing this podcast, but I'm really excited to get to know you better. You know what? I'm uh, I'm really excited to be here too. I've I've listened to you guys now for quite some time, and uh, I've been waiting for my invite. So finally. <laughs> Well, you are my husband, so I may be a little bit biased, but I do think you have a pretty cool story to tell, which is why we invited you onto the podcast. So we're going to get into that in a little bit, but maybe we can have you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. I'm an island boy, born and raised on Prince Edward Island. I'm the youngest of four children. My parents actually had four kids in five years, so, so they were busy. Uh, we grew up on a strawberry raspberry farm, so I guess they chose to have more kids to help out with the work, and boy, did did we work hard. At the same time, uh, my parents were teachers. Right after high school, I joined the military and went off to the Royal Military College in Kingston to study mechanical engineering for four years. That's actually where Carolyn and I met. Between then and now, we have two beautiful children, one of which just became a teenager. We've definitely been building their mental toughness with my military career as we've moved multiple times between uh, Ontario, BC, and Manitoba. And with that comes new schools, friends, and, uh, and definitely new communities. Uh, I am on the cusp of being a master's runner coming in at 39 years old. And I've spent uh, most of my military career in the C-130 Hercules transport airplane as a navigator, where the first half of my career, I was pretty much deployed all over the world. And the second half uh, dedicated to search and rescue here in Canada, which is definitely easier on the family life. 
And currently I'm, I'm flying a desk here in Winnipeg, doing my best to support search and rescue operations. So this is really interesting. You mentioned being in the military, because of course it's a big part of your story, but we are actually recording this episode on November 11, on Remembrance Day, which is, um, I think, quite timely. So first off, I'm going to say thank you for your service, uh, not just you, but your entire family, because... I've been part of a military family as well, and I know it takes it takes a team. So thank you. And um, I'm actually really interested to know. We're going to digress for a moment away from running. I want to know how you and Carolyn met. Oh boy. Well, first of all, I'll I'll say thank you for your comments. You're right. Today is November 11th, a big day for all of us to uh, remember our veterans. And, uh, and you're totally right, too. It, there is a, a family behind every military member, and, and they deserve as much thanks as the military members do. So how Carolyn and I met, do you want the official or the unofficial? <laughs> Both stories will take about an hour, an hour and a half. What do you think, Carolyn? I think the high-level story will do for now. Okay, so very quickly, actually, it is it does revolve around sports. So I was on the, the varsity soccer team. Carolyn was going through her physiotherapy training at Queen's University, and she had to do some placements as, as part of her education. And knowing all the extremely attractive men over at the military college, I think oh she my decided, goodness, this she is where we die. This is where we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, and, and so, you know, we do have, or we had a very strong non-fraternization policy, but I am happy to say Carolyn was the student physio for the female team. Conveniently, we did travel on the road together, uh, which helped cultivate our relationship. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to say anything else on that? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. I was just looking for a very high-level education. <laughs> and it was that, a case of Florence Nightingale syndrome, kind of. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh. That's right. Well, and, and so I, okay, so there is a little bit more to the story. Uh, on one weekend, we were, I can't remember, we were on the road. And uh, I, I did have this really big blister on my big toe that needed the immediate <laughs> attention of physiotherapy at say what, like seven, eight o'clock at night in, in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, lucky Carolyn. So mm-hmm. I got was, to tape his blisters, everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, it was so... a chaperoned event. The other physios were in the room, but I did that's get right. some one-on-one with Carolyn and uh, sealed the deal. The rest is history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are here to talk about running. So let's get back to that. Uh, Johnny, can you take us back to the beginning and tell us about when and how you got into running? Well, uh, like I said, I was one of four kids. I was the youngest, and we were all within the same age, so four kids in five years. So I would say most of my running was either away from my siblings, uh, as they liked to torture me, or just running really hard to try and keep up with them. Their, you know, their their skill levels were just a little bit better than me, so I always had to try that extra hard to keep up. I felt bad for my one brother who's a year older because every time we tried out for a sports team, my dad would always tell the coach, you know, to save on travel. It was either Johnny gets picked up to play with Tim or Tim has to come down and play with Johnny. So uh, I felt bad for Tim because uh, I would say most of the time I was able to make the the higher level team at once in a while, uh, not so much. 
Um, throughout my entire life, I have played almost every single sport. And I'll be honest, uh, I didn't really get into running until, you know, mid 2000s, 2006, seven. And even then it was just on the, uh, on the periphery, you know, going through high school and elementary school, I would do the, the one cross country race a year, got involved with uh, track and field. But I would say most of my running was done on a baseball or soccer field. And uh, I certainly did a lot of skating on the ice as well. I was just going to say, you know, that uh, I know that you, you're really just a natural athlete. You have said that you pretty much do every sport and, and have really made a, um, a dedicated effort to, to take part in lots of different activities, which increases your range, right? Um, and makes a person an all-around better athlete. So do you have any comments on that? Do you think doing all these other sports has helped you in your running? Oh, yeah, totally. I think the science nowadays show that those athletes who have played many different sports are more apt to be better athletes in, you know, one or two later in life. I would say I owe my success in what I'm doing now, you know, my coordination, my strength, all that good stuff to, you know, reaching out and and trying. I'm a, a jack of all trades, but master of none. And uh, that's okay, because in the end, it, it made me try harder to try and, and be on the team. And uh, I think in that attempt to make these teams, it, it helped you know build my desire to to be better and go further. Well, there is, you know, the book by David Epstein called Range that talks all about this. And you're right, it's like really solid science about how diversifying yourself can really eventually make you a better specialist. And uh, that's been one of my missions (laughs) for a long time was to put the cross back in cross training and get people moving in multiple different directions, which eventually makes you a better runner. So I think that's what that's a big mistake that maybe parents are doing today with their kids. They try and focus their kids into one sport. Uh, And like I said, I don't think that will lead them to big success down the road. The other thing too, is that there's more to running than just running. It, uh, It is a full body event. So there's a lot of different things like cross training and core and strength training and all that good stuff that all a lot of athletes need to do, especially as uh, older athletes. <laughs> well, maybe you can tell us. So we've got this background on you that you came from all the all these different sports, and you had this diverse sporting background when you eventually came to running. But how old were you? Maybe expand a little bit on your introduction to running. So, elementary school and high school, just dabbled in it. I would say, you know, I would just race out of convenience and. Uh, it was all based on the the fitness that I had built playing other sports. It definitely plays an important role, but you can do it so much better. So not a, a lot of big races until 2003, which, oh man, what a disaster. So thinking that I was all that in a bag of Skittles, I decided to enter into the Manitoba Marathon. So Carolyn and I, right after university, we moved to Winnipeg as as our first move together uh, in the military. And it was in 2004 where I was like, Ooh, marathon. That sounds like fun. I think I can do that. And, uh, didn't even consult, uh, anyone or any training plan. 
I had this 10K loop that I would do as hard as I could every single time. And then I think I remember reading or hearing about, oh, I should do a long run. Well, better do that as hard as I can. I remember doing long runs through Assiniboine Park and seeing a guy on a bike being like, I'm going to go get that guy. And this is like my super long run, which, you know, wasn't that long in to begin with. And I even uh, injured myself, actually, in the in the weeks leading up to the marathon. Oh, boy. You know, I paid my money. So I was like, I'll go get my bib and I'll go do the race. And if I have to walk, so be it. Anyway, so I, I, I pushed myself to the wall, which I hit around 20 miles and had to uh, walk run the last uh, six miles into the finish. Um, from that day forward, I had an extreme hate, little bit of love relationship with running, uh, especially at that long distance. I, I swore to myself I would never do a marathon ever again in my life. I'm familiar with that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about the next marathon I did in a little bit. <laughs> okay, so that was 2004. So you, what did you do after that? Did you hang up the running shoes or did you just <laughs> switch over to shorter distances? Yeah, totally. No, and, and, and you're right. I did switch to uh, shorter distances and starting shortly after that, extreme focus on uh, on the 5k race uh i did knowing that we would uh, talk about this today i went back into the old archives big shout out to uh, brockville uh, roadrunners beautiful little town brockville where carolyn and kevin are from and they have this annual race and that's the one thing i like about uh 5k races is that you know the the routing doesn't really change if you go back to the same spot the data that you collect on the races that you do every single time allows you to to gain some really good knowledge and information and eventually wisdom from it so you hope yeah you hope you hope so i mean in, in 2005 uh i did crack the 19 minute in the 5k 1859 and this whole time that i'm running like i i know kevin uh i know you guys have him on the podcast i know he's a big runner and i interact with him all the time but did i ever ask him for advice not not really at this time so 2005, I ran just a sub 19 minute 5k. Next year, took like 15 seconds off. So now I'm 1844. And then 2007, broke 18 minutes. So, you know, two years, it took me to shave one minute off. And then it took from 2007 until last year to work my way down to my current personal best or PR for American friends of 17 minutes, 12 seconds. So that's 12 years to take 48 seconds off. So maybe we can just almost break these into two chunks of time. So you mentioned that it took you from 2005 to 2007 to knock a minute off of your 5K, right? You were sub 19 and then you went to sub 18. So in that time when you were chipping away there, what would kind of a typical running week look like for you? Uh, I would say I was running maybe two, maybe three times a week, like maximum mid 30 kilometers per week. It wasn't a main focus of mine because I was still playing hockey. I was in the volleyball league. So I I was still playing lots of sports. So I was extremely active, but certainly not uh, focusing on running. So, you know, to, to take a minute off the 5k and it, in a couple of years, it was, again, that fitness from the other sports, 
and probably some brute force of uh, just, uh, you know, no pain, no gain. That was definitely uh, my motto. So you would do maybe one or two workouts a week and then a long run? Like how long was your long run? Not long. <laughs> like I, I, So the marathon that I did totally diminished my confidence in, in running long. And I w- was probably at the time running them too fast anyway because I started getting IT bands. I think I was stuck at like 12K. For me to go above... 12k was scary because I was always getting that same injury coming back again and again and again. Like I, I, I even went to pro, uh, professionals, doctors, orthopedic surgeons to have it looked at. I was that worried about it. Never mind that your wife's a physiotherapist. <laughs> no, 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 totally. Actually, uh, I did go to Carolyn for physiotherapy on it uh, at one time when she was uh, at a clinic there. Yeah. So that was 2005 to 2007. And then did anything change from 2007 onwards in terms of the way that you approach your training? Like I said, I knew Kevin was big into running and I started having more and more conversations with him about the topic. And I started seeing these uh, great results in the 5K and I, and I knew I had more in me, but I didn't know how to get it out. So I did talk to Kevin and I asked him what his thoughts were. And he said, if you want to go faster, you have to run more, which bah, big explosion uh, moment, <laughs> mind blown. <laughs> and, and I think the other thing too there, I was doing a lot of my running way too fast as well. Okay. So how did Kevin influence you? Like he planted that seed and then did he oversee you doing that, uh, kind of putting those puzzle pieces together in terms of slowing down, running more? Like, talk to us about that. What happened after you got a coach? So in 2012, uh, we were living in uh, in Belleville, Ontario. Big shout out to Belleville. Woot, woot. <laughs> and uh, Carolyn and Kevin and I designed the t-shirt for the club. So I guess me, we started the running group, uh, Running Wild. And it was at that time that I started taking more formalized training from from Kevin who man that guy is like a rain man when it comes to uh running and you know the results you can see it in in all his runners but I still wasn't taking it super seriously because I was still playing other sports I still had the mentality of no pain no gain I remember we did lots of workouts and and Kevin who is very blunt he will tell you to slow down or this is how you should do this workout exactly. Sometimes it became the workout race, which is not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you would always win the workout? Yeah, I would. <laughs> In the group, there were guys that I was running with who we were very similar in speed. And yeah, sometimes you'd be doing a workout and the speed would start inching up, inching up. And looking back, it was like, yeah, that is totally the wrong thing to have done for sure. Okay. So what made you really buy into slowing down and and doing aerobic training then? So after living in Belleville for a while, Carolyn and I with the kids did uh, another military move out to Vancouver Island, Comox Valley. Big shout out to Comox Valley. (laughs) Yeah. And we joined the Comox Valley Roadrunners and holy, what a great running community that was. The roadrunners out there took us in like family and uh, made us feel welcome. So that was outstanding. So 2016, 
we went and did peak testing. So, you know, you, you jump on a treadmill, they throw a tube in your mouth, which is very uncomfortable. They take blood samples every few minutes to uh, determine your VO2 max and uh, lactate threshold. Super amazing way for someone to actually see the black and white data of where you are and how you should be training for any given race. And I think, Carolyn, you did talk about the sink analogy, correct? I did, yeah. Yeah, so just as a, a very quick recap, the tap, which represents your, your body's movement and the effort that you're, you're doing, you know, a little, it's always a little drip because you're always doing something. And then it's tap is full on when you're doing crazy activity. And your body's ability to drain the sink that the water is going into is, is how efficient your body can, uh, can carry on with that activity. Now, as a human, you have two ways to manipulate the sink or make your body better at handling when the water's on full tap. You can make a deeper sink, which is done through high-intense training, or you can make your drain bigger, which is done through slower, longer running. So I've been, uh, you know, no pain, no gain kind of guy, really good at the hard workouts. Oh man, I love the hard workouts. So my sink was pretty deep at the time. And so these results that I got, which were very black and white, told me so, no surprise. But it was really cool for me to see that on paper. I'm a uh, math science data guy. So that did actually start me on the path to slowing the bleep down, which is what I needed. Okay, so those results showed that, yeah, you've got this really, really deep sink. You can endure a lot of pain. You can push through a lot of pain. But your aerobic system, which is kind of that drain, wasn't very big. Your biggest improvements were going to come when you slowed down, when you put in more miles and just built that volume, which is sort of what Kevin was telling you all along. But seeing it in black and white, maybe for your brain was just the thing that you needed to, to latch on and say, okay, I'll give this a try. Is that right? Exactly. So can you just kind of give our listeners a little um, background on how you apply your results that you get from peak testing? So it basically gives you your zones and your paces for each zone or heart rate, correct? That's right. You need to do your easy days easy and your hard days hard. Mm -hmm. And if you need more support there, hire a coach and listen to your coach. That's key here. And I, I did have that support. I had Kevin in the beginning and then I had Carolyn as well. So they helped me build programs based off the results of this peak testing. So, you know, they break it down into zones one to five where zone one is the slow stuff and that's kind of heart rate. Uh, monitor. They do give you paces as well for those that don't have heart rates. And then zone three is kind of like your tempo area and zone five is where you're going all out. Now, I mean, we we paid what, Carolyn, like 150 bucks to yeah, do this testing? Yeah, it was a rate, I think. Yeah, which was totally worth it. But for anyone who doesn't want to uh, pay the money, uh, you just use the 180 minus your age uh, to get that zone one heart rate. So 180 minus your age if you stay below that heart rate, you'll be working that aerobic system to make your drain bigger. Yeah. 180 minus age for the heart rate-ish, you know, everybody's a little bit different. And that's why we're getting the peak testing and, and getting it sort of custom to you is better. But often I recommend with the with paces, like you take your 5k race pace and add a minute 30 or even a minute 45 onto that. And then you know, you're kind of in that zone one. 
You can do field tests too. Like you can do field tests to kind of see over 30 minutes or, you know, what your heart rate is. There's lots of ways to do it. But I think the point you're trying to make is that it gave you a concrete kind of target to go, okay, when I'm running slow, this is, this is what I need to target. And then you, you had buy-in. So you actually trusted in that, even though Kevin was telling you, (laughs) you now had somebody else, you know, science telling you that this is what you needed to do. So what happened next? Did you eventually then get faster? Did you branch out from 5Ks? Like what did you do with all this data? So with the peak testing, I decided to slow the bleep down. And for anyone who's run in the Comox Valley, there's so many hills. Mm. So owning a heart rate monitor is kind of a must. I think it's easier if it's uh, flat here in Winnipeg, like here in Winnipeg, you can dial in your pace uh, if you're an experienced runner. But yeah, I recommend getting that heart rate monitor, which will help you out. So then fast forward, I think like nine months later, we do it again. And the results were better. My sink was still deep because I was still doing those hard workouts, which I love, but my drain was bigger. So the other thing about the Comox Valley too is that you're kind of forced into running longer distances. They have the Island Race Series out there where you compete as a team against other teams on the island. Fantastic event. But I think like there's only one 5K and they range from, I don't know, 8, 12, 15, all the way up to the half marathon. So I... You know, just based on the environment I was in, if I wanted to race, I had to go a little higher. So we lived out in the Comox Valley for two years. In the first year, I think I went up to like a 12K race. I'm like, wow, you know, my injury uh, doesn't hurt. This is fantastic. Not only was I running slower, but I was also putting in more mileage as well, building up that fitness, which is key. And I did that by, uh, you know, following the peak testing and and listening to my coach coming on the end of the second Island race series. So the second year we're there with a half marathon and uh, it went pretty good. That's part of the theory behind slowing down your everyday mileage is that then the stress on your body is so much less that it, it doesn't take as much out of you and you're able to put in the more volume just because every kilometer that you run isn't taking as much out of you. Is that kind of what you found? I definitely did. Yeah. And I don't know, I think slowing down a bit and putting in those long runs, especially Comox Valley, beautiful area. It made me enjoy running uh, a little bit more too. Don't get me wrong. Like I I love a good workout and the track there in Comox Valley uh, is fantastic. And we, we put in a lot of miles there too, Mm -hmm. but. Do you think spending all of that time chipping away at the 5K helped you in the longer distances? Yeah, 110%. I mean, when you look at all of the, or not all of them, but a lot of the elite runners that are smashing the marathon nowadays, they've all have a history on track and, and shorter distance. And uh, I would argue that that has set me up for success, not just the history or my life playing all these different sports and building that strong core and base of the pyramid. But doing the 5K definitely set me up for success in the longer longer distances, mm-hmm. for sure. Like you have that speed to draw and you have that final finishing kick that often you're lacking if you haven't spent all that time developing the speed. And man, do I love a good kick in the end. I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you do. 
I have it. And especially when you're chasing someone down and you, your mind clicks and you go to a completely different zone to chase down someone. Well, you know, you mentioned your less than stellar relationship and experience with your first marathon in 2004 on very little training. And then you did another one in 2019 with better training. So did you have a kick in that one? Can you compare and contrast those experiences for us? I do have a good story on on kicking there for sure. So I got a coach. I have more experience and knowledge and I have a determination that I want to do well and I have a goal to do well in the marathon. So starting out, I was definitely set up much better than the first marathon that I did here 15 years ago. So Carolyn came up with a pretty solid plan. And I followed it almost to a T. I think it's important to give a shout out to being intuitive. Uh, some days, you know, it's not, uh, not going to go your way. So you got to listen to your body. And on the other side of the coin, I would say once or twice, I felt like doing another 2 or 3K repeat because I, I was feeling it. And, you know, making sure that when I do push it a little bit further, I didn't go too far I will also give a big shout out to windproof underwear. So training for a marathon in Winnipeg over the winter, the wind chill here is horrendous. And speaking about learning from experiences in running, you know, you only run in a minus 50 degrees Celsius wind chill with no windproof underwear once. And you will never do that again. <laughs> I, had to, I had to mute my mic. I'm just killing myself laughing. <laughs> And so for your international audience, that's minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, just wanted to throw that out there. See, women, we can wear run skirts over top of our, our tights. And that's, that's my uh, secret yeah. weapon. But yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Nothing makes a Winnipeg winter go by faster than marathon training throughout. But I'll be honest, this is a great city to run in the winter. It's not a lot of snow. So anyways, I have a plan. I have a coach I'm listening to, and I'm executing it to the best of my ability so that when I showed up to the 2019 Manitoba Marathon on Father's Day, mid-June, I was mentally and physically prepared to reach my goal. So my goal was to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I'm a doer, not a watcher. And I have watched so many people run the Boston Marathon, including Carolyn and Kevin, my sister, and so many others. And I'm like, I got to do it. So I, I made a goal. So now I'm on the finish or the start line. Gun goes off. I ran a really good race, probably went out a little too fast. I guess I can't lie now with the uh, sports stats. People can Google my uh, my midway lap and, and show or see that I had a, a positive split. But my goal was to qualify for Boston and sneak under three hours. So here I am. I got, uh, you know, 500 meters to go. And a buddy of mine who's running with me is right behind me. And he's like, Johnny. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want this guy to pass me. So kick kicks in. In my mind, I'm running and there's a trail of fire behind me. Uh, however, when you watch the video, it looks like I'm going in slow-mo, but I did give it all that I had, so much so that I could barely walk out of the stadium afterwards. I snuck under three hours in the marathon. 
and uh, super stoked. I think it's so cruel that they make you walk up those steps in the stadium after because that was like quite comical for us to watch you like take four steps, take a break, take another five steps, take a break. It was quite funny. I'm visualizing the chariots yeah. of fire song here, <laughs> like coming in around the curve into the stadium. Oh, totally. And that I'm was about sorry. the speed I was running to. <laughs> okay. So the training, at, the training for the 2019 marathon was so very different than the training for the 2004 marathon. But I also happen to know that you PB'd in the 5K about a month out from the marathon. Can you tell us that story? Yes. So the Ottawa race weekend is an event that the military uses for their national competition. And so I I had qualified uh, the year before when I went there. And because I qualified, the military sent me, I had done zero, five, or even 10K running. I am purely focused on marathon running leading up to the Ottawa race weekend at the end of May. So there's a bit of month in between the 5K, a month of three weeks in between the 5K and the marathon. And I was just using it as a workout. So I, I go there, expectations were low, right? I haven't done any five or 10K training. It was hot too, by the way. And I pull off a, a PB of 17 minutes, 12 seconds, and uh, just flabbergasted. And now if anyone wants to learn anything from this podcast today, slow the bleep <laughs> down. I think we have our sound yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and interestingly, so I mean, we talked about the peak testing and my portion that I needed to improve was to slow down, which I think is the norm. But there are people who are on the other side of the spectrum, like yourself, Carolyn, like, I think you had spent too much time running the Mm -hmm. slow miles and they were trying to get Mm -hmm. you to speed up. Yeah, exactly. I I think, you know, I haven't been tested in a couple of years, actually, but I'm sure that's the way I am too. Most ultra runners are that way. We spend too much time in zone one. We need to actually Right. Oh, yeah, that, that is a good yeah. point. Yeah. 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 And that's where but, having that yeah. data, I really think, can be super yeah. valuable for some people. I mean, often a coach could tell you just based on listening to your history, like, tell me about your training. And, and really, if you had told a coach about your training and I had told the same coach about my training, they probably could have come up with the same conclusions, quite honestly. But I think for some people, that black and white data is really the thing that they can latch on to and and have the confidence to at least put in eight or 12 weeks of this training to actually be able to to see a benefit. Yeah. And it's that uh, argument, you know, education versus experience. I'm all for experience, you know, get off the sidelines, get into the game. And that's why the shorter distance races like the 5k or, or even shorter is a good way to trial new things, build the core, build the mental toughness, and you have a very quick feedback loop. But then at the same time, armed with some education, so reading a book, going on the internet and getting a, uh, a program, I highly, highly, highly recommend hiring a coach. And when you do hire a coach, listen to your coach. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, you were supposed to run the Boston Marathon this year, and it, of course, was postponed and eventually canceled due to COVID-19. So I'm wondering, are you planning to pursue that? Are you still dreaming of getting to Boston someday if they can do an in-person event? And if so, will you change anything else about your training? 
I am focused on Boston Marathon. It is a, a goal race that I've always wanted to do since uh, my marathon a year ago. <laughs> but no, it, it is a goal that I want to do and, and I will pursue it. Now, we just heard that April 2021 has been pushed to the fall and who knows what's going to happen with COVID-19. I'm pretty stubborn, I guess, when it comes to stuff like this because I do really want to do the Boston Marathon. Between now and then, I'm going to put in a solid, solid base, uh, you know, running uh, maybe some shorter distance or time trials. Time trials are super easy when they're shorter distance. And I mean, if you if you picture your training like a, a pyramid, the base of that pyramid is all of the slow running that you can do. And then the peak of that pyramid is is the hard training that you do closer to the event. So the more that you can build on the base of that pyramid, it will raise the peak up higher so that you'll be more prepared for uh, for race day. That is a brilliant way to describe it. I love that. I'm all about visuals. I got that from Coach Kevin, patent pending. Episode three. So Johnny, how, again, switching gears yet again, um, I know you are married to a holistic nutrition coach. How important is nutrition to your running kind of story? And have there been any shifts in the way that you think about fueling in the last few years? Nutrition is critical. Like I talked about earlier, there's a lot more to running than just running. I would say the most critical thing that you need to do is recover. The best way to do that is with sleep. And next to that is the, the fuel, the food that you put in your body. I like the analogy of using a car, and I always use this whenever I'm trying to talk to people about food. It's like, would you put water in your gas tank? No, of course not. And why are you putting junk in your body that we're not made to process very efficiently? So we're focused on eating whole, clean food, meat and veg, nuts, seeds, and uh, healthy oils. And that's kind of where we focus our food. You know, we're human. We'll have uh, the odd dessert for sure. We have uh, experimented lots in this and, and we found out that you know when we start doing hardcore training yeah we need we need more carbs to be healthy uh, unfortunately we learned the hard way where uh, we tried to do a uh, an extremely low carb while doing a hardcore training and it, it didn't go very well we felt like we lost a little bit of our performance but not all carbs are created equal and we get exactly. uh, yeah and, and so our sources usually include you know sweet potato wild rice, quinoa, fruit, stuff like that. And I know it's not easy for a lot of people. It's easy for us now because we worked at it and we've developed the habits. And now we just don't even bring junk in the house. And you know what? It was hard for our kids in the beginning too, but they are totally on board now. And, you know, we explain the why they're old enough to understand and they're, they're mostly on board. They're kids, right? That's so true. You know, if it's not even in your house, you're not going to eat it, right? Especially when we're quarantined and we can't go to get groceries now, um, except to order online. So it's interesting to me, you know, you, you, so you essentially eat really no category of diet, but typically lower carb. And when you are doing higher volume training, you need to add in some of complex quality carbohydrates. That, yeah, totally. And, yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's hard because, you know, we get into the habit, we're eating such uh, healthy whole food that, 
you know, it's hard to actually go hungry and we'll go a long time, go a long time without needing to eat another meal. We'll just eat when we're hungry. So when you start doing stuff like marathon training and you, you know, start doing the math on, oh, wow, you know, I just did a a 20K workout. I need this many calories in a day. And you're like, holy, I'm, I'm definitely not getting that. So you, based on experience, and I totally recommend experimenting, like, Nobody is mm-hmm. the same and everyone needs to try different things and see what's worked for them. Uh, like for me, I don't eat dairy. It's not good for me. It's not good for the family when I eat dairy. So I stay away from it. But when we are training, we do need to eat uh, a little more calories. And sometimes like Carol and I had to really force ourselves to, to eat enough. Well, you know, Carol and I have talked about this, you know, you and I have talked about how, yes, one size does not fit all. Everybody's got to find what works for them. And not only that, but what works for you at this point in your life, you know, as we age, our hormones change. And as your training volume changes, you know, what worked for you 10 years ago may not be what your body needs now. And, and that's a, it's a constant, I won't say experiment, but almost flirtation with figuring out what works best for you. And then when you add in the family dynamics of having to feed kids and a partner, it can get complicated, but that's, it's a critical part of the equation that I really think needs to be highlighted. Totally. I, I 110% agree with you. And if you're really serious about it, there are things that you can do that will enable your success. So like I said, don't even bring junk into the house is, is step one. If you have stuff in the house, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And I think people are often initially reluctant to do that because it feels like a deprivation. It's like, oh no, I don't want to go without that. But I feel like what people find in practice is that it's actually just so much easier to not have it in the house. And after a day or two, you don't even think about it anymore. It's, it's when it's in the house that it calls your name. That's what my experience has been with, with coaching some people around this is that just the act of getting that food and like purging the pantry, so to speak, that act is very hard. But once it's done, I feel like then you're kind of on autopilot with it. Yeah. And, and when, uh, you know, Halloween was around the corner, Caroline was way better than I was. I did have a few treats. Not only did I feel like crap the next day, which I totally did. My sweet taste was diminished. So normally like a banana or an apple would be super sweet for me that next day. It totally wasn't. I totally noticed a difference. Like the more you have, the more you want. Okay, so switching gears again, you touched on it earlier in that you've got that kick, like you've developed that over your life in sports and competition. You can dig deep at the end of a race. So a lot of people struggle with that, I've noticed, myself included, and I've observed you to be a very, very mentally tough person. So do you have any nuggets, any gems you can tell us? Like, what do you tell yourself on the start line of a race or when it starts to get hard? And do you think your military training is an asset here? I do have many parts to answer that. The first thing is experience. And and we did touch on that a little bit. The way to build a muscle is to work it out. So the way to build mental toughness is to get into mentally tough situations. What a great way than shorter distance races because you can recover super quick and get back out there within a week or two to to try again. Growing up, I wouldn't say I had a tough childhood, but 
man, did we ever work hard on the farm? And I very vividly remember facing some mental challenges while trying to do a lot of work under the hot sun uh, in the summer when, you know, all your other friends are out golfing and playing sports. So I think, I think that mental toughness for me started really young. And as I said, I was always trying to keep up with my siblings. You know, I would say my skill level wasn't always the greatest. So I always tried to make up for it in that mental toughness in pushing as hard as I could to maybe not be the skilled guy, but I was definitely the fastest guy in the field. Another good way to set yourself up on the start line is to do everything possible that you can do to control the outcome and be prepared for the race. You know, determine your goal, not a marathon next weekend, but a marathon, you know, a couple years from now or a 5k in a few months from now. Have that as your goal. Talk to a professional coach and come up with a really good plan. Execute the plan to the best of your ability, which includes the sleep, the nutrition, and all the little ancillary exercises that will make you stronger. So that when you show up on the start line, you're as prepared as you can be. Visualization is another one. I like running some certain 5K races, like the Ottawa race weekend was always a, a favorite of mine, you know, big hoopla and a lot of fun. Uh, you also get to run on the on the Saturday night, so you get to party while the marathoners and half marathoners have to go to bed early. But I was always able to visualize the race step by step. You know, for me, the hardest part is between the 3.5 and 4.5 K mark. And I find I always, based on experience, I always found I was always slowing down there. So I always try and visualize that part of the race and, and see myself speeding up. Very recently, I just did a uh, 10K time trial about three weeks ago, got a PB for myself. So super stoked about that. When I woke up the morning of the race, I watched the world record in the road race 5K was recently set. And I watched this guy run the race. I remember during the race feeling it was around the 5, 6K mark. So I'm just over half. And I remember being like, this sucks. This is painful. I hate it. And I started to visualize this runner. I remember just feeling a shift in my running. And I don't know, Carol, I think you said you might have seen it too, smiling. I'm like, mm. man, this feels great. And it was that visualization that it got me through it for sure. Visualization is such a powerful tool. I've only started to get glimpses of that, but yeah. If you're running a race, it's going to hurt. You need to embrace the suck. It is going to happen and when it happens, you need to deal with it. You need to try and develop that love-hate relationship with when the race starts to hurt. It doesn't. It, I don't think it matters the distance. It's mm -hmm. always going to hurt. So the more comfortable you can become with that, the better off you'll be. And that will get better mm -hmm. with experience. True. Yeah. So, Johnny, who has been inspirational to you on your running journey? I have three people that I, I want to uh, recognize. My mother would be the first one. Man, uh, you know what? I owe her a great deal for my mental toughness. So picture a woman who was, you know, female athlete of the year when she was in high school to having a body that slowly degraded away to nothing. And uh, she unfortunately passed away actually while I was uh, deployed overseas. But despite her body shutting down on her, 
she was so mentally tough. She took one day at a time, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen her sad. She was also the one pushing us out the door to, uh, you know, get outside, go play, and uh, get exercise. And when we were doing some cross-country and training events, uh, she would actually force us out to go do a, a mini training run or something. So that that's number one. Uh, she's definitely my hero. Second one, and I'm using this only in chronological order of who has trained me, would be Uncle, I say Uncle Kevin because of our kids. Uh, I'm going to probably so call very... Carolyn, I'm going to call Carolyn mommy <laughs> next. But uh... <laughs> So... So Kevin, he would be number two. He took me under his wing back when I started taking this seriously and definitely uh, showed me the way. And then recently in the last five years, I have leaned on Carolyn heavily. And not only has she shown me the way, but has also inspired me through her own running as well. That's awesome. You guys are, you're a, you're a powerful couple, powerful running couple. And I think we're (laughs) We're fortunate to hear your stories for sure. So Johnny, what what's next? What's exciting you now besides the Boston Marathon next year? Is there anything else on your um, radar for running? Not really, no. I was hoping for Boston in the spring. And as much as I'd love to train for a third year over a Winnipeg winter, there is definitely a small part of me that's happy it's pushed off until the fall. But I will say that once this Boston Marathon is under my belt, I will definitely be going back to shorter distances. And I'm not really sure I want to make this public. But as stated at the beginning, uh, I'm 39 and I'm turning the, the big 4-0 next summer. Uh, and it has been a goal of mine for quite a while to sneak under the 17 minutes in the 5K before I turn 40. So it'll likely be a, a virtual 5K here in the spring And I almost want to get into uh, obstacle course racing. I think my body type uh, is is probably more built for that. So I'd like to give that a go. I will say any race that opens up that allows runners to run together, I am there. Well, you've got the shoes for OCR now, right? So you're all set. Yeah, big shout out for Salmic. I have all kinds of shoes. My favorite Saucony Nike Merrill, and I'm digging the Salmings now too. Awesome. Love to hear it. I love my psalmings too. Okay. So we have our five rapid fire end of the podcast questions. You ready to go? Oh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Let's go. So yes, this is your chance now to share with us your favorite mantra. I know these are quick fire, but I do have a three part answer to this question. So in the beginning of a race, I always ask myself, what would Carolyn do? And she would tell me to slow the bleep down. So that's a mantra that only I do at, in the beginning. Okay, yeah, uh, only at the beginning. I'm like, I don't tell you. Slow down at the oh, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> so based on my you know, desire to transcend that physical pain, I do have a mantra that I've been using for so long. And, uh, and I even remember using it uh, during the first Manitoba Marathon I ran uh, 16 years ago now. And it's, uh, I am a machine. So basically, I know my physical body can handle it. I just need to step out away from my brain telling it to shut down. The final one, which is kind of in the same context as uh, I am a machine, uh, there's an ex-Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink. Mm -hmm. I've listened to a bunch of his podcasts, and he's well known for the mantra, good. And so from that, you know, when things are the worst, when things are super shitty, you're still alive, you're still breathing, 
And that means that you still have some fight left in you. Basically, he's embracing the suck and he's pushing through it. So good. Uh, love that. That's great. Where is your favorite place to run? So if you could be just dropped anywhere in the world to go for a run, where would it be? I would say running in my hometown uh, on Prince Edward Island. Carolyn, you agree. You know where I'm talking about in, uh, in around my, uh, where I grew up. There's some amazing trails that were created from old railway system. The island's so small, they got rid of the trains. So they converted all the mm-hmm. railways to trails. Rails to trails. And uh, there's some amazing running along some beautiful scenery there. I would love to visit PEI one day. I consider myself an island girl, but from the West Coast. And I think it would be so fun to go visit PEI. Okay, so what is, you know, you've kind of already answered this question, I think, but what run is on your bucket list? Yeah, definitely Boston. Yeah, I will, I will be primarily focused on that until it is complete. Not to say that I, I won't be doing uh, other races as they come up between now and then. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? Longtime listener of the Inspired Souls podcast. <laughs> I, uh, I, took, I took Kevin's advice and I read Once a Runner, uh, a bit of a cult classic, which I, I, I didn't know about. Um, but man, I loved that book. There's a lot to it. And I, I don't, I won't ruin the ending of the book, but the author who is an experienced runner, just he, he takes so many pages to give the minutest of detail of the struggle a runner goes through in, uh, in a very difficult race. And uh, I was there, I lived it, I, I totally felt it. And uh, I, I could see myself in that race. So once a runner, for sure, recommend reading it. Awesome. So finally, what is your favorite post-run indulgence? This has a two-part answer as well. So it depends on the results. So if I just smash the time, I will have like an internal Tiger Woods fist pumping session. Or if it's not awesome, I'll have, uh, I will allow myself to have a uh, 30 second to a minute little pity party off Mm -hmm. in my own. But shortly thereafter, it, it has to be celebrated. The, the event, the race, the whole, the whole part of it, the people, everything about it, it needs to be celebrated. Typically, as part of running groups, we will get together with, uh, with our community after a big race and uh, always love it. Um, and there, there might be a glass or two of uh, a nice, good cab soap as well. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this has been awesome, Carolyn. I, uh, I've really enjoyed this one. Me too. I sound surprised. I shouldn't sound surprised. <laughs> I think it's, it's really good to have a conversation with both of you. We tend to pass by like ships in the night when we're flying back and forth between things. But it's been great chatting with you, Johnny. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very yeah, much. You've dropped a lot of wisdom on our audience. I hope they can handle it. But <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much for, <laughs> for coming on. and. Um, Just going back to the fact that it is November 11th. Thank you for your service. Yes. Thank you. Love you. Love you. Bye.